It's Monday, June 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The 2020 campaign season officially kicks off on Tuesday when President Trump takes the stage in Orlando to announce his bid for re-election. But things are different this time. He's the incumbent, he has millions of dollars in his war chest, and a far more sophisticated campaign apparatus. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this and the winners and losers of the Democratic debate lottery. Next, one of the most important issues people deal with is healthcare and the rising costs, which is why politicians are constantly trying to get a handle on it. But healthcare monopolies exist everywhere. Even the behind the scenes parts of the industry are controlled by a few companies, which drives up the costs for everyone. Sam Baker, healthcare editor at Axios, joins us for a healthcare system full of monopolies. Finally, there's a fake meat gold rush in the fast food industry. Restaurants are rushing to add meat-free burgers to their menus, but suppliers are struggling to keep up. Rapid growth in demand is straining the ability of Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods to fulfill all the orders. Heather Haddon, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Safety, security, great economy. We've rebuilt our military. We're taking care of our vets. We're doing the best job that anybody's done probably as a first-term president. I think I've done more than any other first-term president ever. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. We got some big news coming. I mean, it is the campaign that never really ended, but it's officially starting again, and it sets 2020 all in motion. President Trump is going to be taking the stage in Orlando on Tuesday to announce his bid for re-election. What are we expecting on that day? It's important to note, President Trump actually filed for re-election the day he took office. So he's been running for re-election for two years now. But he will head to Orlando on Tuesday to sort of formally, formally, formally announce his re-election bid in a big rally. They're organizing a big fest in the parking lot. They expect a packed arena. And we should expect pretty standard Donald Trump campaign rally. He will speak, uh, as he does normally for an hour or longer, um, and and really start to make the case for why he thinks the American public should give him another term. The first lady's expected to be there, Vice President Mike Pence, his wife, Karen Pence, all of the president's children are all expected to be there. The big difference now, though, is that the president is no longer this outsider. He's the incumbent. And everything kind of changes because of that. His whole campaign operation is far more sophisticated Talk about that a little bit, because <laughs> just reading some of the quotes of people involved in the campaign, the, you know, some people said, oh, it was like being in a rickshaw plane falling apart. And now they're partnered with the RNC. They have millions and millions of dollars. And it's just a completely different game. His campaign enjoys that plain comparison. They have said to me on a few occasions that his 2016 campaign uh, was like they were building the plane and trying to land it at the same time um, was kind of uh, a mess. Uh, this is why it's important to understand that the president filed for re-election on day one. He has had two years of raising money, hiring staff, building an operation, planning. Uh, his last campaign was really sort of just thrown together. As someone who was covering it and interacting with it day to day, he had a very small staff, uh, a staff that was unable to really grow as he became the nominee, in part because uh, he had ostracized so many within his party during the primary, compounded by the fact that he didn't want to hire people who had worked for his rivals. 
Now, two years later, he's able to hire some people that have uh, a lot more experience. He's able to get people on board uh, that might have otherwise not been inclined to two years ago. Um, And his campaign tells me that they're really building a behemoth of an organized campaign. And they seem to know that he's got some disadvantages. There was a lot of back and forth with the president and the press this week about polls, his internal poll numbers, which show him behind Joe Biden in important places like Pennsylvania and Michigan. They won't acknowledge that themselves, but when I talk to them here, an acknowledgement that they have a big deficit they're going to have to make up and that they're going to need that sort of large campaign operation to overcome it. In those polls specifically, he's losing double digits to Joe Biden in a few key battleground states. The spin on that is that those are months old polling. And, you know, they say that in polling, a month's old poll is, is ancient at that point. Just going back to the money, uh, the president has $40 million with the RNC combined. They have $82 million. The thing is going to be the message, obviously the economy. For now, we know the the president's unorthodox style. And now that you have to, what you have to know is that you have to follow the president's lead on this and then amplify his message. He's not the type of guy who you're going to give him talking points. He's going to actually stick with them. Uh, The campaign has to be nimble and work around him. That's right. You know, the campaign is unable to say, you know what, uh, Mr. President, we think that you can win voters in Pennsylvania by going out next week and talking about infrastructure. How about you get out there and give an infrastructure speech, uh, which is how most campaigns would operate. Instead, President Trump gets out there and says, you know what, I think it's going to get voters in Pennsylvania happy today talking about immigration. Let's talk about immigration. Uh, And he does. And his campaign has to go along with it. So still not the normal traditional model that we would see uh, in a campaign. On the flip side of this whole thing, the debate stages are set now for the Democrats trying to get the 2020 nomination. And they were trying to avoid this whole kitty table thing that happened with the Republicans the last time around. They kind of got a stacked deck anyways. Four of the top five front runners are all in the same debate stage on night two. Uh, those are all the people that wanted to be uh, around Joe Biden. What do we know about how this stage is going to be set up? We see four of the top five have ended up on the second night. That's Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, and Pete Buttigieg are all going to be on that second night, leaving Elizabeth Warren, the only candidate that's currently polling in the top five on the first night. There's a ton of speculation and guessing about what this means. One theory will tell you this is bad for Warren because she can't compare herself to the other four candidates. Someone will tell you, oh, no, and I'm kind of of the school of thought it's good for Warren because she's going to have a stage uh, to herself without the other four of the top five. Some will say this is good for everyone because Bernie's going to go after Biden and no one else will have to. Some will say it's bad for everyone because Bernie and Biden are going to suck up all the attention. <laughs> yeah. That's going to seem like the varsity debate and the other debate is going to seem like the JV. Man, I mean, it's, it is it is exciting in this world of presidential politics just to have so many to duke it out this way. But going back to what you were saying about Elizabeth Warren, she's going to be basically alone as a front runner there on the first night, though, when a lot of enthusiasm, people are going to be tuning in. So that is a plus for her. I mean, for all the other people, though, we have Senator Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke. These I mean, these people need to really find that breakout moment. And without Joe Biden being there, I mean, they might have a chance to, you know, get a couple of good sound bites in there. So it, it's, it really is going to be uh, pretty interesting to see what happens. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
You know, we're caught in this dichotomy where on the left, people want more government control or, or greater coverage through public programs. On the right, they say we want free market and competition. Well, right now, we don't really have either one, right? We have this highly concentrated, very inefficient system that is not living up to the principles of what a free market is supposed to get you. Joining us now is Sam Baker, healthcare editor at Axios. One of the most important issues that people deal with right now is their health care and the rising costs. Politicians are constantly trying to get a handle on this. But what's really going on right now, too, that's driving up a lot of the costs is that the healthcare system is full of monopolies. Even behind the scenes in things that people don't even realize, a lot of these sectors are dominated by one or two companies. Tell us a little bit about these monopolies. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and it's something that's happening throughout the healthcare system on several levels. So some of it is happening really out in the open. The best example of that is hospitals. Big hospital systems, hospital chains are buying up their competitors so that every, you know, there's only sort of one option in your town or your region. They buy up doctor's practices so that when you go to the doctor, you're affiliated with that hospital. That's something people see, right? If you're using the healthcare system, you see that you only have one option if you need to go to the hospital or you see that your doctor now is part of a hospital. But then if you look one layer deeper behind the scenes, we got some new data from a group called the Open Markets Institute that shows there's also a huge amount of consolidation in the things that we never see. So sticking with the hospitals lying here, for example, syringes. There's one or two companies that dominate the market for syringes, which obviously hospitals buy. Hospital beds is another one. IV solution is another one. So you just sort of see this consolidation of these, these monopolies or duopolies, which obviously have a lot of power to set their own price, name their own price and drive up prices from behind the scenes to the way that you get care on down the line. It's kind of a cascading effect. You mentioned the syringes. That sector in and of itself is not one of the more profitable sectors. I think that brings in about $3.8 billion in revenue each year. But still, there's that. And then you compound that with all sorts of the other subsectors and price start to increase because there's so few companies controlling all of that. As you said, syringes, hospital beds, those couple of examples that we mentioned, none of them necessarily is the linchpin to the healthcare system, right? It's not like hospital prices are high because of the concentration in syringe manufacturers. And if we could solve that problem, we'd crack the whole thing open. But it's just one thing after another thing, after another thing, after another thing that leads to the United States paying more than any other industrialized country in the world for healthcare. One particular sector where the examples are really stark is dialysis. 92% of the market is controlled by two companies. Two major powerhouses in dialysis clinics, the places that you would go to get dialysis. And then in keeping with this theme of it's all the way through the system, there's also really only two major powerhouses in terms of the companies that make dialysis products. So the stuff that those clinics would buy, there's two companies here, two companies there. One, it's actually the same company, straddles those two markets. So there's really a total of three companies dominating this whole space. And dialysis is also a really good illustration of why this matters. So there's been this push underway to reform the VA, the Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. And part of that was to liberalize the system so everything doesn't have to come from a VA doctor. Veterans don't have to go to a VA facility for everything. Sometimes they can just get private care. Dialysis was a part of that. And I talked to some experts who said, you know, there's an argument for that for dialysis, right? In a rural area, there's one private dialysis clinic and then a VA clinic. Why does the VA need to be spending the money and paying the rent and all this to keep that open? Why not just put it into the private market? Well, if the private market is a monopoly, then you're not going to end up saving any money. 
right? So you see how this sort of core issue of, of monopolies and industry concentration affects broader healthcare reform. According to the Open Markets Institute, for a typical American family of four, the annual cost of healthcare now surpasses $28,000. At the beginning, I was talking about how politicians are always trying to get this under control with a bunch of different ideas. We're coming up into 2020. You're seeing a lot of Democratic candidates proposing things like Medicare for all, single payer. How do these monopolies play into some some of those types of plans? They really can. Let's use the example of hospital systems again. When you have a region of a state, northeastern Pennsylvania, for example, that's been where hospitals and healthcare providers have consolidated, there's one healthcare system right now. That's going to be the biggest employer in that part of the state. That's going to be a place that people in that part of the state count on. And so when you come in with an idea like Medicare for all or some other sort of private option, if you want to create any savings in the healthcare system, you're going to have to cut how much you're paying that hospital. And that hospital is going to be a pretty strong adversary, right? They're going to say, we're X number of jobs. We're the lifeline to life-saving care here, and Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or whoever it is wants to cut us. They're going to be very potent foes here. With a name like the Open Markets Institute, I'm sure they're for a lot more competition and all in breaking up some of these monopolies. But do they offer any more suggestions to help fix the problem? There are a lot of experts outside of the Open Market Institute, just sort of people who study the healthcare system, who would say, you know, we're caught in this dichotomy where on the left, people want more government control or, or greater coverage through public programs. On the right, they say we want free market and competition. Well, right now, we don't really have either one, right? We have this highly concentrated, very inefficient system that is not living up to the principles of what a free market is supposed to get you. We also don't have a very robust social safety net, so we still have millions of people falling through the cracks. So we're caught in the middle right now. And I think there's a lot of people who would say we just need to go in one direction or the other. Sam Baker, healthcare editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. It's often been distributors that are serving maybe some of the independent restaurants, some of the first restaurants that carry these products that have experienced shortages and really to the irritation of some of these restaurant owners and their customers. Joining us now is Heather Haddon, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about the fake meat gold rush, and it's real. Fast food restaurants are embracing these more and more. Regular restaurants are embracing these right now. About 15% of restaurants have some type of meat alternative. That's about 20,000 restaurants. And it just keeps growing so much so that the two main companies, Beyond Meat and Impossible, are having a hard time keeping up with the demand. Tell us a little bit about that. There has been incredible growth. This one survey that we quoted showed about 15% have some kind of veggie burger, I believe, and QSR and fast food restaurants. But the 20,000 is actually the number of restaurants that are now serving the two big new alternatives. That's Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. So these are new companies that were formed that have a very different process for making these kind of meat alternatives. It's not just the old mushroom or soy burger that you may be used to or maybe have tried before, but they use technology and research to isolate different proteins and other ingredients to make a burger that really feels like a burger. So it can grill, it can sizzle, some of them can even bleed, and that has caused a lot of fast food chains that maybe were hesitant to try something like this that didn't want to scare off their customers that are coming there for meat or really devoted to a meat-like experience to try these for the first time. I've eaten a bunch of these. I've had both of the 
those beyond the Beyond Meat and the Impossible Foods burgers. They don't taste exactly like the real thing, but they're actually very tasty. And you throw the right seasonings and you throw your ketchup and mustard in a burger and everything. And it tastes really great. But as these fast food companies, a lot of restaurants are bringing these on. I mean, they're even in the stock market. They're being treated like superstars beyond meat. I think that stock price went up four times from its IPO last month. I think it's valued like at six billion dollars. And so this is kind of the new trend. But as these businesses are basically starting right now, it's hard for them to keep up with that demand. I know some of them have been increasing their production, hiring more people. But tell us a little bit about some of the companies that have taken them on, like White Castle, and how they're struggling to meet some of that demand there. It's actually the fast food chains that, by and large, have been in a better position, I think, because just some of the ways that they've structured these deals and rolled out the products. But it's often been distributors that are serving maybe some of the independent restaurants, some of the first restaurants that carry these products that have experienced shortages and really to the irritation of some of these restaurant owners and their customers. So the companies say that they are expanding, they are trying to meet demands and the capacity. But of course, these are newer companies. These are not companies that have been around for years and years, like some of the traditional veggie players that have much more robust supply chains. So it's going to take some time for them to scale up quickly. In the meantime, they are eventually probably going to have more competition. There's other companies that clearly see that this is a space that is hot and are looking to enter with their own kind of plant-based versions of meat in the coming year. So tell us how these fast food restaurants are faring with these new burgers. I mentioned White Castle earlier. I know they were seeing increased sales. Overall, it seemed like all of them were seeing better sales and they cost more. The companies themselves saying that these are generating a lot of buzz. So it is bringing a lot of attention and they believe that ultimately this will increase traffic long term. I think the question is, is that true? Short term, it does seem to be causing some increase in sales. The other question is, are these going to be profitable? So they are marking them up in most cases than a traditional beef burger or other kind of meat product. But it doesn't seem like they are delivering the same kind of profit so far because they just cost more. How much does it cost right now compared to traditional meat? It really depends. The White Castle slide I was mentioning costs about a dollar more than a traditional one. So a traditional slider is about 90 cents. On average, these would cost you know, $1.90, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for some people that might be too much. They don't care enough about this issue to fork over more money beyond maybe just trying it once or twice. But even for the companies themselves, despite requiring less crops, water, and energy to raise livestock comparatively, it still costs about twice as much as the standard ground beef does. Yeah, and again, these are small companies. They're scaling up. They're newer. These products have needed a lot of technology and research to make them, and these are early stage companies. And so it just costs more currently. They're also trying to build up their supply chains for some of these products, like the peas that go into some of these products. There's only so much demand. So it's going to take time. And I think this surge that is happening now maybe have caught some of them by surprise. But they say that they're going to scale up and that cost will come down. But we'll have to see if that actually happens. So now that we've gotten to this point, these two companies specifically are struggling a little bit to meet demand. They're ramping up their production processes. Is this fake meat? Are these going to be around for a long time now? They certainly think so. I mean, I can't predict that, but I think the fast food chains think that this is an area that's going to stick and these companies themselves, I mean, just based on what they've seen so far and the response they've gotten, including from investors, they think they're onto something.
Heather Haddon, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.